Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. Today my guest is Ivor Ladlam. Hi Ivor. Hello. And Ivor is an old acquaintance of mine. You're not, you're not old, you're just an acquaintance from the past. I am old. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and um, I've, I've invited you here to discuss uh, dialectic and Dialectic is something which listeners of the podcast have already heard of, but I'm not sure about how much detail I got into. And I'd like to have a discussion on what dialectic is and also for us to um, share as much as possible our experiences with doing dialectic. Um, also, when you were the person who kind of drove the discussion and as I was just being introduced and also... Um, a little bit of uh, how you discovered it and how it came to be an area of interest for you and so on. How does that sound to you? That sounds like a lot. Okay, <laughs> let's try. Um, I, I hope yeah. this cat will last an hour <laughs> well, I hope sitting so on me. Um, so dialectic... How would you begin the story, not of what dialectic is, which would be the obvious thing, but just like your um, knowledge of the concept and when would be the first time that you kind of come across this concept and start being interested in it? Uh, how far back do you want to go? As far back as you I think could say, is relevant. Right, let's start when I was 11. I went to grammar school in England and we learned as a foreign language French. In the next year, we had a choice between Latin and German. So you can guess which language I chose. Nine. Yeah, you, I chose German, and the teachers all said, no, 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 you have to learn Latin. Um, for some reason, they thought that intelligent people should learn Latin, and still they thought I should learn Latin. And they said, uh, you can always learn German later on because the teacher is still here. Uh, after a few years, he wasn't. So I never got to learn German at school. Uh, yeah. um, and so I learned Latin for how many years would that be? Six years, something like that. And by chance, I got the best uh, exam results in England and was immediately taken away to Exeter University to do Latin. But when I got there, the secretary at a tea party said, you know, you can't just do Latin. You have to learn something else as well. So I asked her what, and she gave me a list of the usual things you learn with a classical language, like archaeology, history, and all that. And she mentioned Greek, ancient Greek. 
So I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll, <laughs> I'll go and learn ancient Greek. Who teaches ancient Greek? And she pointed to someone in the middle of the room. Nobody was anywhere near him. Um, so I went over and said, I'd, I'd like to learn ancient Greek. And his face fell. You could see he was really <laughs> upset. Uh, it turned out later on he thought he was going to have some free time, but uh, now he got a student. So <laughs> I, I learned ancient Greek on my own with him for a year. Um, so all of this is quite by chance. It's against everything I ever planned. Um, and then after a year, I, I was fairly... Uh, familiar with some texts like Homer and Plato. Uh, then he went off, and I thought he was German, but he was actually from Haifa. So <laughs> he had returned to Israel, um, and he went to Tel Aviv. And then after I finished my BA, two years later, he wrote to me and said, you can apply to get a grant to... Uh, to carry on classics in uh, in Israel, uh, obviously with him. Um, so that's what I did. I applied for one year, got the grant. I didn't know what I was going to do after that year. And I went to Israel to learn Hebrew as, as the third classical language, Latin, Greek, Hebrew. Uh, the lazy way by being in Israel where everyone speaks ancient Hebrew, right? <laughs> Uh, and he uh, said, uh, you know, I've been having this problem with Plato. Uh, I haven't said he was an expert on Greek philosophy. Um, and he'd been reading Plato, comparing it with what people said, and uh, it just doesn't work. Uh, what Socrates says in the dialogues is absolute nonsense. It's not what people say he should have said. So we started thinking about the problem of Plato, and eventually I wrote a seminar paper on a problem in Plato's Republic, that is Thrasymachus in book one, which is notorious for being a problem. There are lots of articles on it. Uh, so I read the articles first, and then I read the dialogue, and I was shocked how different <laughs> the dialogue was from uh, what people wrote about it. Um, and then for my uh, MA thesis, I wrote on another dialogue, which some people said wasn't platonic. Some people said it was platonic. So I said, right, I'll ignore that problem. I'll just ask what is in the dialogue, what's happening in the dialogue. Uh, that was Hippias Major. And by chance, that's the dialogue by Plato on the good. So, so this is all accidental. Everything that I have ever done, uh, what well, nearly everything, has been unplanned, completely accidental. Um, but uh, here's here's a, 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 some advice for your listeners: make the most of your opportunities. When when something weird happens, jump on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, th this is this is actually a topic that came up a lot in this podcast, like uncertainty, serendipity, and all that. Yeah. And it seems to be really a, a thread that runs through the lives of people who are in a good place in their lives. If it's, you think about it, mm -hmm. how could you plan for something you know nothing about? Right. But the only way is when you're accidentally exposed to it. 
and I've always thought about this, uh, I was accidentally exposed to uh, Greek philosophy and then to Plato in particular and so on, but it's because there were people who were willing to expose me to it, and I'm passing it on to other people. I'm giving them this chance as well. Right. They wouldn't have that chance if I didn't do it. And we haven't even mentioned the one thing you did, which wasn't platonic, which is your relationship with that teacher's daughter, right? Uh, no, I haven't mentioned that. And that, <laughs> I would say, the beginning as usual, it's accidental. How would I know <laughs> that he had a daughter? But then, uh, uh, yeah, so we got married. And because of her, I'm now in Israel. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I wouldn't have been in Israel without her. It's, it's all a matter of yeah. luck, really. And then, but and exploiting then, the opportunities as they come along, I had to fight to stay here. Yeah, to be with her. For sure. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's you know, not we, that we... I just sit back and let let things happen. Once I decide that something's good, then I will fight for it. Mm, yeah, and to, to extend that story to kind of segue into us meeting, then I will just say that, you know, when I came to be a student at the University of Haifa, and that would have been 2012, uh, 11 or 12. Wow, and that was a I, long time ago. Yes, that's <laughs> way too long. Um, and uh, so it's kind of the same kind of serendipitous or really random trajectory where I just sign up for a degree in linguistics and philosophy, but the philosophy um, somehow is just not what I'm looking for in the first semester. So I drop out, but I decide to take uh, Latin as a second language and not because I'm required to, just because I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a language nerd. And then we meet and then at some point, I remember seeing you speaking with uh, Banna, our friend, and telling her, oh, you know, would you like to do philosophy or something like that? And I'm like, oh, it's something that you do. It's not something that you go to an auditorium <laughs> to hear about all these accounts about Descartes and Hume and Hegel and whatnot. It's, oh, it's something that you do. Yeah, I'd like to do that rather than um, kind of, write down all the opinions of, of different people and um we basically get to hang out uh weekly on a weekly basis for the next couple of years or something and i'm coming to this very uh unaware of what's going on uh <laughs> also quite confused and there is no premise really i'm just at this point a person who is happy to kind of share what's going over them and probably looking for friends um and and i don't yeah but over time it's just this becomes very clear that this is interesting to me because i get asked a lot of questions so i get to think very hard about what i say and then and did i, I ever tell you anything no, uh, except for some bullshit, <laughs> except for some bullshit, which I was supposed to expose. Um, right. And sometimes I, I haven't. Um, but the interesting thing is that for me, I noticed that all these questions really at first, they make me think about what I'm going to say, because up until then, I was quite good at, um, I don't know if it's like charming people or at least making a good impression, because... 
you can kind of understand what the other person expects you to say and you can just say it and it's not like i was conniving in this way and just thinking about that meeting people but it seems to have been something that i did and once you meet somebody who's not particularly impressed with what you say and presses against it all the time with questions or at least makes you until think today about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um then the then the sec so the first part is kind of this um just becoming quite frustrated with an inability to be your normal self but then at some point thinking about what it is that the other person is trying to make you think and what the benefit is going to be um from it so i don't know for how long the word dialectic did not even come up in conversation because it wasn't framed as a weekly dialectic thing or in any way really yeah. do you, do you um, know why we never actually talked about that wh <laughs> what do you mean why did we not talk about the word dialectic right yeah i mean it's because you don't have to talk about something to do it exactly it's like yeah. talking about philosophy altogether there's no point you just have to get into it you start doing it and yeah, then you absolutely. can say oh and by the way this is called so and so afterwards yeah, it, I, I was just reading the beginning of Symposium just earlier today. And, you know, straight at the beginning, somebody tells somebody, I can't remember the characters right now, but somebody is telling somebody, it's like just um, kind of scolding other people for um, for rich people just discussing things and not doing philosophy. Um, but I'm really into, oh, but he says, like, I'm really interested in your account of that night at the banquet uh, what did uh, Socrates say about love there, right? So, in essence, it's like mocking people who just discuss things for the sake of, of just uh, passing the time, but at the same time really interested in... Uh, that, in that person happened to be interested in rhetoric, right. and the whole of the symposium is about rhetoric. There are lots of speeches. And the person who remembered all of this is someone who is interested in rhetoric. So the people who are holding this conversation aren't really interested in philosophy. Exactly. It's interesting. Exactly. So I think that's actually a pretty good segue to kind of um, talk a little bit about the difference between rhetoric and dialectic. So to be sure, I'm going to positively say to listeners, this is about dialectic. But it's quite important to understand a little bit of the history behind it um and i think what came before dialectic is rhetoric right there's no question about which kind of became a thing Bef right no first no they, they they came together really um in sicily people were beginning to work out how to persuade people and the general story is that someone called Korax, the, the raven or the crow, um, saw that people were not winning their cases in court against the tyrant who was just deposed. And he drew up a list of things that they should say and shouldn't say. One of the things people shouldn't say in court is the truth. 
the truth does not persuade people, um, especially if the case and cases in court usually are this sort, uh, a, a case which is an ordinary. People know what is ordinary and they think that what is ordinary is true. Normally, if you have a tall man and a short man, this is the example he gave, and uh, the tall man you would expect would always be able to beat the short man. But in this court case, the short man is accused of stealing the tall man's cloak. So in court, if they said that, if either of them said that, he'd lose because it's uh, completely implausible. So the tall man would say, um, this short man and his friends stole my cloak. The short man, all he has to say is, what, me? I'm a short man. I couldn't possibly take his cloak. Um, this at the time wasn't called rhetoric. And then uh, someone from Sicily called Gorgias happened to come to Athens in 427. He was sent there by his city to plead their case for some reason. And uh, he did that, and everyone was so impressed with him that uh, some young aristocrats wanted to learn how to persuade from him. Uh, again, it's still not rhetoric. He's, he's just teaching people how to persuade, and that involves not telling the truth. Meanwhile, Another person comes to Athens in 427 from the north, and that's Protagoras. And Protagoras has been working on language, what language is, and so on. And he's also from the north, where people are already a bit more skeptical about uh, the gods telling us things through poetry, that sort of thing. They think, no, that's just man-made. So he and Gorgias together, they, they don't actually necessarily talk together or anything, but people study with both of them, and gradually we get this mix which becomes rhetoric. So rhetoric is uh, to do with using language, knowing how to use language in such a way that it persuades people. So they work on beautiful language, beautiful structure, all, all that sort of thing, using the right sort of words. There are certain words you shouldn't ever use, and there are some words you should use. It's just like modern business language, same thing. Right. So let's... So, let's um, yeah, go ahead. Do you want... So that's, that's the rhetorical side, and this led to a degeneration, and some people thought this led to the defeat of Athens in the Peloponnesian War. So to react to this, we get people like Socrates. And at the beginning, I don't think there were other people. It was just Socrates at the beginning. And uh, he started questioning people because that's the only way to stop them being persuaded unthinkingly by beautiful language. So he started asking questions, having conversations with people, and this is the art of discussion. Now, what's the word for discussion? Dialogos. 
dialogos, dialogos, and dialogos is dia and logos. Logos, among other things, is speech or thought or reason <laughs> or a word or a sentence. Um, this is all because logos actually means collection. A collection of letters is a word, a collection of words is a sentence, a collection of sentences is a speech, a collection of uh, words is a sentence which can be used in the mind and it becomes a thought, an opinion, uh, or even reasoning. Dia means through, not to. To is duo. This is a common mistake. People think dialogos means a discussion between two people. It's a discussion between, it doesn't say between whom, uh, normally between people, but it can also be a dialogos between a person and his own soul, so an internal discussion. And the adjective describing something pertaining to language is... You know this one. What the uh, the 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 yeah? Uh, sorry, you mean the the uh, adjective uh, pertaining to a conversation? Oh, dialecticos. Dialecticos. Dialecticon. Yeah. Dialecticon. So dialecticos is someone who indulges in discussion, and the art techne, from which we get technion, techne, is feminine. So techne dialectike. The so, art of conversation. The art pertaining to conversation. Well, techne rhetorique, the art pertaining to uh, speechifying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to, flow, <laughs> to flow of words. The definition of rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Right. In classical literature, that is the definition. Right. And dialectic, uh, is, or, or another one is Tokolos uh, Legain, to speak beautifully. While right. the definition of dialectic is to Legain, to speak well. That's mm -hmm. the difference to speak beautifully, to speak well. Where well means actually for a good reason, <laughs> a good end. Right. So let's, let's, um, let's, connect that with with your story and the point at which you begin work on platonic dialogues um the word itself is not something that socrates called his own um art right it's not it's not a term that actually socrates is it in any of the dialogues? socrates doesn't have an art he doesn't call himself skilled at anything apart right. from love, but, but that's a joke anyway. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and is, is the word itself, does it appear at all in the It does appear. Corpus? It does appear. Um, he says at one point with Mino, uh, we should talk dialecticos, mm -hmm. not, not as um, uh, um, aristicians. Can have right. another. Right. Um, uh, an aristician is someone who indulges in eris, which is strife, or competition. Yeah. Competition is not even debate. Uh, well, debate in the original sense. Debata yeah. mm -hmm. is to beat down. Yeah. Anything to do with winning. 
Now, how do you win in a conversation? How can you do that? Uh, you, you told me that uh, two and two is five. I say two and two is four. Have I won? No. I've just right. said what's true. And you don't even have to accept it. You can carry on saying it's five. So that isn't how you win. How do you win? If there are people listening to the conversation, then you aim everything that you say to them. You want them to think that your opponent is stupid and they will at some point start laughing at that opponent. And that, that's the sign that you've won. So yeah. winning is humiliating the opponent. So it's very important, like the framing for people listening, like to, to kind of gain an understanding of, of the framing. Um, yeah, I think the one that appears in the Mino is super important. You can either, you can talk with people and use words, but the, the framing of it is very important. Are you competing with them um, as some sort of... Uh, person who has to win over the other one or persuade the other one and if not the other one all the people that are going to mock the other one or are you friends who are about um, to go on a shared search for the truth and if you find somebody who's not your friend at all um, and is just looking to make his point and prove that he's right uh, a shared search of anything is not possible, right? Do you want an example of dialectic? Uh, if you want to, yeah. Put because uh, you, you said that uh, dialectic is where friends have a shared search for the truth. So, so I can ask you several things. Um, do they have to be friends? Well, <laughs> I... So now we're not talking meta. We're going to do the thing, huh? Um, this is the actual thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I relish it. it. We haven't had it in a while. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so this is exactly the type of thing, right? Then we would have to uh, go on a, on a shared search of the truth regarding the term friend. Wait, wait, wait. For example. Wait, I asked you a question. You're avoiding it. <laughs> I'm a good rhetorician. Yes. Do they have to be friends? But I mean, really, it depends on what friendship is. Is it is it a one-way thing or is it by definition mutual, right? That's one thing we have to answer. When you're asking, do they have to be friends? I'd say that to do dialectic, you need a friend in there. So one of them has to be a friend to right. the other. Does yes. the other one have to know that that person is a friend? Uh, well, I, I I was just telling everybody that I came into your office on a weekly basis, not having an idea what we were supposed uh, to exactly, do. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, shared search for the truth. This is a common misconception. This is how most scholars describe dialectic. And, and they see Socrates in the dialogues as as inept as his uh, um, what do you call a bloke? Uh, his interlocutor. interlocutor. Yeah. His interlocutor, yeah. Um, if they were both completely in the dark, they had no idea where they were going, would Socrates 
talk the way he talks? Would he lead the conversation the way he leads the conversation? Right. Um, no. So in a sense... No, right. It, now, next question yeah. before you ruin everything. <laughs> 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 if Socrates does know the answer, why don't we ever reach an answer in the dialogue? Okay. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> So so let's so let's uh, backtrack into your your story again. Like if if dialectic is just a term that appears in the Mino, but in terms of actually trying to or starting to uncover some of the truth about Plato's dialogues in your research, um, what what is like a, an early working hypothesis? Um, and what would be the point when you discover dialectic? And I don't know if it's because you encountered this specific word in the Mino or through some other means, but um, when does dialectic itself as a concept stick out to you as something that's very important when reading Plato? When I analyzed Hippias Major, there were two... Um, participants, Socrates and Hippias. And my question then was, why do they talk to each other? They must have a reason for talking to each other, otherwise they wouldn't talk to each other. I know it's a very daring concept, but uh, it worked at the time. Um, what's interesting is that you can't just say, what is Socrates' motive? He's talking to people. What are their motives? This is something people forget, that everybody has a motive. And uh, it uh, transpired that Hippias was talking to Socrates because he is completely concerned, obsessed with appearing to be good. And in order to appear to be good, he needs an audience. And in this particular case, it's Socrates. That's the best he can do. There's only Socrates there. Uh, usually he has many people as his audience, and he knows what to do with many people. He always appears good to the many. But Socrates isn't the many. And Socrates asks questions. But Socrates has a problem. If he asks questions which makes it clear that he isn't impressed by Hippias, what would Hippias do? Go away. He would go away. Is that a guess? No, Hippias says that in the middle of the dialogue. He says, if someone talked to me like that person talks to you, Socrates made somebody up who talks really badly to Socrates. Uh, if someone talked to me like that, I would leave. Now, Socrates knows that, so he cannot afford to look as though he's not impressed by Hippias. So he always frames his questions to make it look as though he is still very impressed with Hippias, and yet if Hippias understood what Socrates was saying and applied what Socrates was saying to himself, he would realize that there's something wrong with his entire attempt to appear to be good to everyone. What's the point of appearing to be good? Now, that, that was his motive, to appear to be good, and it's very clear. 
what the motive for Socrates is wasn't so clear at the beginning. Why is he doing this? Uh, in fact, a lot of people think Socrates is just a psychopath uh, who enjoys uh, ruining the lives of other people, yeah. <laughs> asking them difficult questions. But uh, he has a reason. And if you think about it, what would happen to Hippias if he did begin to think critically, if he did begin to ask himself questions like, why am I doing this? What's the point? Well, would I mean, that be better or worse? It would be better for him. It would be and better. Also, so incidentally, Socrates, he, would, he might begin to see Socrates as a sort of teacher. That's another thing. Well, that, that's another thing. Uh, was Socrates ever a teacher? Did he teach? Uh, no, but that doesn't mean you couldn't learn from him. Well, it depends who you ask. Plato's Socrates does say things. Well, normally, if he says anything dogmatic, it's absolute rubbish. Normally, he asks questions. Actually, mm -hmm. when he says something absolute rubbish, people love it. They say, oh, yes, good, he said something... Yeah. intelligent for once. Uh, <laughs> the person who has a Socrates who teaches is Xenophon. Xenophon wrote dialogues as well, and Socrates there gives advice. And if I, remember correctly, if I remember correctly, Xenophon lived in um, after Plato, and so he might have been reading Plato's dialogue. So he did not have you're, you're half right right you're half right socrates and xenophon lived at the same time they both knew socrates but mm. then xenophon left athens before socrates was killed um just after the end of the peloponnesian war so around 403 bc socrates uh was put on trial in 399, so that's five years later. Xenophon went with his friend from Thebes, who was a captain um, on the winning side in the Peloponnesian War, the Dorian side, Sparta, Thebes, all, all those cities. And uh, the Persian brother of the king of Persia, uh, decided that the only way to beat his brother and become king himself is to uh, get all of the winning soldiers in the Greek <laughs> war to come with him against his brother, mm. together with all his Persians. He had Persians as well, but the Greeks were the secret weapon. And so they all went off to fight against his brother um, near Babylon, there was a big battle, and they lost, but the Greeks won. So for a while, the Greeks thought that they'd won, that they couldn't see anybody else, and then they realized that all <laughs> the other Persians had run away. Uh, and then the Persian king did his best to kill them, but they were Greek soldiers. They're really good. Greek soldiers are amazing. They're like a tank, and, and they just went wandering around uh, until they get got to the Black Sea, but before that, there there was a an act of uh, betrayal. The uh, friend of the Greeks 
on the Persian side, Tissaphernes, invited them all to uh, a meal, a meeting in a tent. And when they were all there, the commanders, that is, when, when the commanders were all there, they were all murdered. So the Greek army had no commanders. And so Xenophon what did they is do? where? Where is Xenophon? With them? He's at the, he's not one of the commanders. He's a friend of one of the commanders. Mm-hmm. So he's outside. Uh, so the, the Greek army voted for new commanders. And they put Xenophon in charge, the Athenian, on the losing side in the war. They, they chose him to be the commanding officer presumably because they could all agree that he's useless. So they put him in charge. (laughs) It's better than uh, someone they would have rivalry with. And uh, he led them out to the Black Sea. But because the, uh, the Spartans had won the war, they were everywhere by now. And they were up in the Black Sea as well. And a commander in the Black Sea forced them to fight with him against some Athenian force up in the... This is after the war, but they're still fighting. Uh, And when the Athenians heard about that, they exiled Xenophon. There's no way he's coming back to Athens, uh, the the traitor. Right. Uh, So the Spartans gave him a home in Lacedaemonia, the area of Sparta. And that's where he wrote his books, proving that he was a wonderful Athenian. And how does he prove that? By showing that all the other Athenians are bastards, they're terrible people. They killed uh, Socrates, who was the best Athenian citizen ever. And he describes Socrates as he sees a very good Athenian citizen. So it's all rhetoric. Yeah, well, um, that, that now, was quite the, thing quite is, the how, story. Right, and how can he write about Socrates if he wasn't there for his death? Obviously, he used other sources. Now, who wrote about the death of Socrates? <laughs> Plato. So, we have an interesting situation where Xenophon and, so- and Plato disagree on many things about Socrates, especially his philosophy, but sometimes they agree on things. Now, it used to be the case that people said if they agree on something, that must be real, that must be true. But actually, if they agree, it means Xenophon copied Plato. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So we don't really know much about the historical Socrates. We know some things, but not very much. Right. Yeah. Now that's that's. Uh... Uh, thanks for the um, elucidation there. I want to take you back to like your own uh, personal story. I told you this was th- it was this kind of podcast. <laughs> um, but after having uh, come across the 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 idea of dialectic, the concept of dialectic, and encountering it, um, could you share? Oh well, no, I'm still in the hippias major thing. Okay. Uh, Socrates, I worked out was. Um, representing a good person. And then the question is, so in what way is he good? Aren't there other good people? For example, you can have uh, a doctor, a teacher, whatever. He's none of those. He's not a teacher. He just asks questions. Um, Why is he 
chosen to represent the good person, as opposed mm-hmm. to Hippias, who is the apparently good person, but not a good person. Um, Hippias appears good. He looks good. He's well-dressed. He's well-spoken. But he's actually harmful because he teaches the wrong things. And what exactly does he teach people? Not to think critically. They accept what he says. While Socrates is the opposite. He's ugly. He's very badly dressed. He's badly spoken. But... He's doing this thing. He's trying to get someone to think critically. So this is the height of being beneficial, thinking critically. And then I thought, so what is this? How does Plato call this art of thinking critically? And that's pretty obvious by then that it's dialectic, but it doesn't appear in the dialogue. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, and um, I, for, for you then personally, having kind of understood this, do you? What what is the process like of of um, infusing your own life with this? Because this must have been. Well, you uh, know, I just annoy people. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, uh, the other thing before we go on, there is uh, informal dialectic, which is the way Socrates does things. Because he doesn't tell people he's doing dialectic, it's informal. He doesn't go through all the due process of dialectic. But Plato himself and his followers did practice formal dialectic. They say in advance, I'm the dialectician. You are the person receiving the treatment. So I ask the questions. You answer the questions. No mistake here. This is the way it's going to go. Um, And this is an indication that it's not a shared search for the truth. The one who's asking the questions already knows where they're supposed to go. So he asks not any old question. He asks the sorts of questions that will lead this particular person to the understanding necessary. Uh, First time we've mentioned understanding. If I told you that uh, the good is the fitting, you'd say, oh, that's interesting. You write it down in your notebook, but would you understand what that meant? No, you wouldn't. Right. Which is why we have dialectic. I ask you all sorts of questions which are aimed at getting you to say, oh, that's uh, good because it's fitting to that. I mean, you get to that realization yourself. I never said at the beginning, at least, fitting or dialectic, sometimes not even good. I just ask you questions and you would get to those answers yourself. That is the only way to get you to understand anything. Right. Um, yeah, it's understand. Uh, it's it's interesting, like seeing that I invite people on Twitter and elsewhere to do dialectic. Then it must mean that I am Plato and you're Socrates. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and and uh, I mean, th- this is this is what I tell people about dialectic is that it's. If we go back to like the shared search for truth, it's not that it's shared in the sense that we're 
both people are in the dark, but you have um, you have a guide, and it's the guide's job to understand and to frame things according to the understanding of the student and their worldview. And so it's there's a lot of kind yeah, of... Yeah, it's, it's not all that, that easy for the dialectician. The dialectician has to understand the student. Right, so there's a lot of... Uh, mind surgery sort of to yes. like see see what yeah. um see what goes in uh, in there in in the person's mind and that's the which f- means i do actually listen to you sorry for interrupting right uh, <laughs> i do actually listen to all of your stories and i understand what your uh, interests are that's always useful because then i can use your interests to help you understand things in other fields. Yeah, and the downside is that you have to go along with some digressions that are completely... But it is uh, interesting. It I, is. I know where it's all going, so it's good. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, you know, for me personally, like, understanding this or at whatever point in time we did say, oh, we were doing dialectic or I was kind of tr- starting to understand what's going on there. There's... I can't think of a word, but it's definitely a subjective experience of things falling into place. And yes, this, this things, um, click. things click for sure. And you know where you get the, the, the feeling that things click when you do puzzles. And that is kind of or what... Or read dialogues. Or and I'm and I'm saying that after, they... after five years mm-hmm. of reading a few pages, Hippias Major isn't that long; it's about thirty pages. Uh, it took me about five years, and if one day, eventually, suddenly, boom! I, I got it. Yeah, so it that's... took that long. <laughs> and they are puzzles. They are. I mean, yeah. Um, and I'm I'm interested in in the in the like so the personal subjective experience of walking with it in the world is I can testify completely different from before. So I'm wondering, like in your case, um, could you describe any part of this subjective experience of having understood dialectic and maybe this first dialogue and what it changes in your personal life? Uh, that's hard. Well, what is is, uh, is... over half my life now? It's not that I've been uh, living like this for a year or so. It's it's uh, about thirty years. I know, but do you remember maybe? So the concept of the good is discussed in in Hippias Major. But having understood that this is dialectic, and you can apply it in the in the search uh, for truth. Of uh, of a concept, right? What would be like one of the first concepts where you thought, "Oh, this can be done independently"? And you mentioned dialogue could be a dialogue w- within yourself, right, between you and your yes. mind or whatever. Yeah. Then, if you understand this thing, you can set out to work on certain problems and certain concepts. And really, that's what Plato wants you to do. Plato is not even interested in you really getting his meaning of each and every concept. And he does it in Greek, too. Like, uh, that would be that, that's a question. How do we know what he wanted? Because uh, his take on concepts is pretty good. 
What I do a lot of the time is try to be critical about his concepts, and try that, to develop them. And uh, what's interesting is we have a case in Plato. Hippias Minor <clears throat> deals with uh, one concept. Do you know what the concept is? Power, yeah. Yeah, dynamis, so power or ability. And then, uh, and in, in that dialogue, it's already showing that ability can be used or abused. When it's abused, it's in order to appear good. People with power like to show that they have power, and other people are impressed by it, and they say, aha, that person is good. This is an abuse of power. While the person with power, Socrates, doesn't look as though he has any power. He's a pathetic, uh, I don't know if he's old in, in this case, but he's um, not really taken seriously by the others. He's more entertaining and he's used by them to uh, cross-examine Hippias and they're too afraid to do that themselves because they know they would be shown up by Aristics. People would laugh at them. So they get him to do it for them. So this is uh, already the idea that there is the appearance of good and actually being good, mm -hmm. and they appear to be the opposite of what they are. And this is what he develops in Hippias Major. Has he changed his mind? No, he's added to what he already had. He developed because uh, it doesn't use concepts uh, arbitrarily or he doesn't theorize and then try to apply it to reality. He starts with reality and abstracts from reality. Right. This is what the dialogues are about. They, they are a dramatization of reality uh, in essence. He's giving us the essence of the whole of reality. You might say, but he only uses men and not women and that sort of thing. But that in itself is irrelevant because the men here are just men. They're, they're, they're humans who represent concepts. We could have used women. Right. But in his time, it would have looked a bit weird. So he uses men. So I... I but... Uh, so Ivor, I want to though, like that. That's that's such a, a a good point. I was thinking about you know the fact that Plato had people over at his house, and he wrote thirty something dialogues or around thirty. Um, thirty six. Thirty six. Yeah, I don't know if that includes like the the bad ones that are. No, no, no. That's thirty six, and okay. then there are some additional. Ones okay, so thirty six dialogues. What I meant to say was that you know in each of them, like is reading them and analyzing them and arriving at Plato's understanding of them very good for us? Yes, because he was super smart upon examination and we might as well just find that he that he was right and creating accurate concepts. But I meant that, you know, to us, for example, I don't know, even though I can read Greek with some proficiency and I can analyze it with some proficiency and I can gain an understanding, in the end, uh, after having read these 36 dialogues, yes, you might arrive at um, maybe over 36 good, uh, well-formed, accurate, true concepts. But I think Plato's idea was to give his students the ability to think critically so that they could think about any concept that they like and make it well-formed, right? That was... That was yeah, my yeah, point. Yes. Um, yes. So and and obviously we are living in a different world here. 
We're not like, living in an, in the Athenian polis, thinking in a different language, in the and and in a different language, and so obviously we do have to uh, think continuously, which is what he would want us to do anyway. Always exactly. criticize. Don't assume that you have the final answer. Uh, earlier, when I said that the dialectician is the one who knows and he guides the student, obviously, the the one who knows carries on thinking as well. Right. Um, so that was uh, my meaning when I sat down to ask you what would be some concept that you then felt felt empowered to think about yourself and an area in your life to work on, or it could be just an example. It doesn't have to be the first one, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't think of um, one concept. That's the thing. I think of the whole system of concepts because they they're all intertwined. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, obviously, it's true because it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, a- anybody who does dialectic is going to discover that everything is connected, and we're talking about a, a matrix, not um, not something in isolation. But uh, to me, at least, it was. You know, at, at one point, it is beneficial to concentrate on one thing. And as you kind of probe around it, because I see the, the process of dialectic as trying to find the, the boundaries of a thing more than actually trying to immediately go and describe the thing as it is, right? Because if you find the limits of a thing, you also, by definition, know... Um, the thing itself. And then when you come across a boundary or a limit or a surface, you find that there's something else on the other side of that surface, right? And that's going to be another concept. So uh, one image to think about is maybe like when you um, blow like soap bubbles, but there are many, many of them. They're in a cluster and they have their surfaces touching one another. Now, this, this can't be true because actually, like, um, bubbles that are farther away and don't have uh, shared surfaces, like, in reality, they do. It's not something that we can exactly visualize in, in 3D space. Um, but I hope the image works to some extent. And I, I've, had, I've added bubbles to your, my list of interests that you have. Yeah, <laughs> I will perfect. use bubbles in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> Very good, and um, yeah, I'm sure you'll be you'll be telling me that you're sorry to pop my bubble when it comes to something. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, I have found it beneficial to meditate and meditate in the sense of just thinking hard about a concept, for example, justice, because when you start from one concept, it's just naturally at some point you're going to leave that concept and put it aside. On, on like on hold, right? And go and kind of examine something adjacent to it that touches on it. And that thing you're going to put on hold as your interest is picked in some other adjacent concept that relates to both of them necessarily. And the whole... Um, the whole... There's I, something that unites all of them. Mm-hmm. The good. Right, which is... Because they are all aspects of the good. Right. Yeah. And um, and they also have to have um, good proportion between. Them. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about 
fittingness, in what ways things are fitting, how we might confuse fittingness between things. I see it all the time on the internet, on the news. Um, and if uh, I decided that asking people questions is the best thing I can possibly do, surely I should be asking everyone I come across questions. But I don't. <laughs> Thanks now, for leaving, because then you wouldn't and, be and executed like way, Socrates. Exactly. In this way, I'm more like the philosophers who came after Socrates, who all realized that so Socrates took it to an extreme. Uh, well, Although I don't think he was executed because he asked well, questions. And, and, of course, let's remember that just because this is what Socrates does in Plato's dialogues does not necessarily doesn't mean... Doesn't mean he did it. Right, right, which is important. Right. <laughs> and the other thing is that the characters in a dialogue are models representing aspects of an idea. They are not meant to be role models that we should follow. Right. And for what it's worth, he is, he is actually well-liked among some of the people who appear in the dialogue. So it's not like we can paint a picture where Socrates is universally annoying by people. So this could be uh, an... But there are people who like people who annoy people. That's true. It's fun. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. But I mean, some of them attribute him with, with an ability to have helped them in the past and so on. So I'm just saying this to point out that uh, this, for example, could be... Um, something to ponder when reading a dialogue like Socrates is almost never doing anything that pleases anyone in a dialogue yes uh, uh, yet to kind of give an accurate um, atmosphere to the whole thing sometimes you do encounter people who who like him for past discussions they've had with him or something like that or they do appreciate his uh, his conduct let's say it's more usually emphasized that nothing actually changes. And that is important in the dialogues because they are models. Models cannot change. Right. It's impossible for models to change. We are not models. We are human beings. And we are supposed to realize that we can think critically. And then we can try to make other people think critically. That's the best we can do. So... Yeah, and, and I'd like to share something from, from that time when I did dialectic with you intensively. And that is the fact, and, and I don't know whether to call it a side effect or, or a derivation a or derivative or anything <laughs> like that. But one interesting thing I noticed is that it helped me listen to people. And it, it uh -huh. was just um, <laughs> such an interesting experience because... Listening, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you that you don't talk at some point, but actively listening, uh, engaged listening, uh, listening is something which is very clearly more beneficial to the person you're discussing things with because you're able to actually uh, refer to what they just said and and put yourself in their shoes. Also, it's it's very beneficial to us because. We don't have to bring our own our own shit and our own baggage into every conversation and get lost in this chatter in our mind that's already thinking about what we want to say in order to um, 
salvage some sort of ego that is constantly threatened by by what people say right i don't know for some reason our egos uh when they want to save themselves they just want to assert their own existence by having you talk about them in certain ways um so i don't know like what what do you make of that that this is something that just naturally comes with um dialectical thinking the the more you practice dialectic the more relaxed you'll be you'll stop having your internal turmoil right and you'll be stronger you'll be able to help other people yeah and this relates to something which um appeared in an episode i just released with uh, pamela hobart but you know the whole idea of mental health and and what health is in the end and why it is really if you had to have one thing and kind of you know in the sense that somebody thought it was like what is the one thing that you would like to have and you can't mention any other things never mind the fact that there are aspects of that thing and they're all related but if you had to come up with one answer of of something that's worth having if if having is the correct usage here it's it's not but uh it would be mental health right the the absence of internal strife so in the end of course this has to do with fittingness too no surprise there at this point um but- this this is in agreement with most greek philosophers who would put the healthy soul as the main thing right if you do anything that affects a healthy soul that then you shouldn't do it then you should and on the other hand what's that you shouldn't you should not do anything which threatens the healthy soul right which is interesting because this kind of um relates to socrates um description of, of his daimon right which is a Um, yeah you might say that mm-hmm. you might say that when he dies he has affected rather badly his soul his soul ends together with him mm-hmm. unless he believes in an afterlife we don't know really but the point is you don't want an unhealthy soul while you're alive if he had uh compromised his principles his soul would have been unhealthy right but it's not even that was it's what not he even, was avoiding it's not even this diamond from um that, that tells him that you know he should in fact just comply and drink the poison i'm talking about the framing of the diamond as a spirit that tells him what not to do rather than what yes. to do um, yes 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 and in plato in xenophon it's the other mm-hmm. way around tells him what to do like positively it tells him what to do mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh, that's or, or what will happen and that's that's a really interesting thing because i noticed that in our lives and you know generally speaking growing up in western society we grow up to be hedonists right um maybe there are cultures that have solved for this and can raise you to be a, a not a hedonist when you grow up i don't know but in our culture we grow up to be hedonist and one thing i've realized is just how deeply it's ingrained in us that thinking um about health is just the absence of 
sickness, it almost pains people to think in terms of not looking forward to a reward, right? It's, and it just goes to show like how, how much we're born with this view that we should always be looking towards a reward and then kind of compute back like, oh, what do I have to get to that reward exactly? Whereas keeping... It encourages the mm -hmm. feeling of lack, the something we don't have. Right. While in fact, if you have a healthy soul, you have everything. Right. And then anything else is a bonus. And then, yeah, and then it's really interesting because this is um, a very strange quality for, for somebody who hasn't done dialectic, who hasn't come to this understanding, right? You, you can't really, it's nearly ineffable in words to tell somebody who's uh, a hedonist to describe to them what it's like not to lack something. That's hard to do. Uh, Plato has a go at it <laughs> in in Philebus. The <clears throat> pleasure is normally the filling up of a lack. Like you, you're uh, you enjoy drinking, scratching, because you're scratching an itch. Yeah, scratching an itch is Callicles in Gorgias. Okay, there you go. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same idea. Uh, even Epicurus, who everyone thinks is a hedonist, uh, he is a hedonist, but the uh, pleasure he aims for is the lack of pain. Yeah. That's it, the lack of pain. He's not going after any pleasure at all. Uh, in fact, a lot of pleasures lead to pain, so he uh, avoids those pleasures. Right, it's it's the it's uh, there, there the, it's the less it's hedonists. the less fun version of a hedonist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in a way, when you say uh, having a good soul uh, leads to a calm life and euroia, uh, uh, a, a good flowing of life, uh, that sounds like you're being hedonist, but actually you're only saying it to a hedonist because. <laughs> It's just um, uh, something that happens along with having a, a healthy soul, which is the main thing. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What 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 do you feel like uh, with this podcast? Is there anything else that um, we should add right now, or save something for Not a right later now. episode? We, we, we can store up a few things for next time. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, well, this. Ask your listeners what we should talk about. If there was anything in this that they want develop, developing. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, well, Ivor, it's been a, a great pleasure to get you on a long form podcast finally. We did some short ones before. <laughs> and um, yeah, for anybody's listening, for anybody who's listening, yeah. um, I, am, I am doing dialectic with people and it doesn't cost anything. So. I'll be Plato, and then either what what do you what do you do just so people uh, get a better idea? What do I do? 
Yeah, I don't know. They might think that because you're Socrates, you're just walking around in rags all day and not showering well, very often. basically, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very unpopular in my workplace. <laughs> and also... So you want the, you want... Uh, well, uh, a little bit, and then also where um, some of your work could be fi- uh, found... Um, podcast books and so on. Uh, so officially, I teach Latin and ancient Greek. I'm not allowed to be a philosopher, <laughs> and <laughs> don't ask why. I don't know why. Um, and that's about it, really. That's what I do, and I help loads of people with research, and. Uh, yeah, so what do I do? What, what, uh, my podcast is uh, The Plato Paradigm, which you can find in most good bookshops. Um, Spreaker, Spotify, uh, YouTube, those are the main ones. That's where you can find it. And books? I have books, but that's not interesting. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll link to them anyway with your permission. Oh, um, all right. Or at least the one that can still be found. I mean, it's, they're very interesting, but uh, whenever I uh, give someone a book to read, they don't read it, so I've stopped that's, pushing that's books. That's true, but I try nevertheless. I try. They're super interesting, and I highly recommend reading about them because the whole method of analyzing platonic dialogues is laid out in them. Um and kind of shows the path for anyone who's interested in learning ancient Greek and analyzing um, dialogues by themselves, then uh, that's the way to do it. Um, That that would be nice, because most people actually working in the field don't read my books. Right. They go out of their way not to read my books (laughs) because they disagree. (laughs) Yeah. And the worst thing you can have is a critical way of thinking so (laughs) (laughs) all right well this has been a pleasure after i uh hit stop still uh hang out hang on for a minute and um all right yeah for everybody listening uh all right bye-bye